Welcome back. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. So as you turn there, let me say a prayer for our time together. Well, Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We praise your name today. You tell us that if you are lifted up, that you will draw all men to yourself. And so we thank you, Lord, for your willingness to draw near to us. We thank you that in Christ we have access to the Father. We thank you that you are our great high priest, that you intercede for the saints. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide, who you say will remind us of all truth and that will guide us and that will be our teacher and our helper. And so this morning we call on you to give us wisdom and understanding about your word, that you would speak to us personally so that we may know how to respond. We pray that we would put into practice the things that we hear and that you would convict us and that you would speak to us. Give us open ears that we may hear. Help us not to harden our hearts, but to listen closely and to follow you in faith and obedience. Bless the reading of your word this morning and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 through 14. The word of God says this. About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. What's he talking about? About this. He says about this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. What's he talking about? He's talking about where we left off last week. He's talking about how Jesus fulfills the office of great high priest, and he does so in the order of Melchizedek. And if you're lost already, then this passage is for you. He says about this we have more to say. There's more to say about Melchizedek There's more to say about Jesus' role for us as the great high priest, but we can't talk about it because you've become dull of hearing. He is going to talk about it, though, in chapter 7. We're going to get back to Melchizedek. I know you're all excited about that, uh, but that's what he's going to go on with. He's going to continue to talk about Melchizedek, but right now he's going to take a brief break to encourage them in their faith. Verse 11, he says, About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So this morning we want to understand why is the author bringing this up and what it is he has to say and why are they dull of hearing? Why is it hard for them to understand this passage? Why is it hard for them to follow this understanding of Jesus as the great high priest? As soon as I read this verse, uh, I remembered when I was 19 years old, I was brand new in ministry, Uh, I had my uh, first or second maybe opportunity to preach, and it was on this passage. Uh, I was a believer for two years at that time, and if you've ever sat through a new believer's first or second sermon, God bless you, uh, it's uh, kind of, you should get combat pay for that. It's a difficult thing to break in a new pastor. Uh, Over the last five years, I've been a pastor for the last five years, and Preaching 50 times a year uh, is a new experience for me. Uh, I hit a few years ago my 300th sermon total, and I felt like I was just now learning how to preach. 
uh, once I got into that stride. And so, Lord willing, the best days are yet to come. Uh, definitely still make mistakes and, and definitely still uh, struggle, but, but to preach those first sermons uh, were really terrible. It takes a special congregation, uh, a lot of patience to hear that. But on this particular passage, I don't know how I came up with it or why, but I was on my way to church uh, in the morning in Hot Springs, Arkansas. It was a 40-minute drive from the town I was going to college in called Arkadelphia. That's right, this town is called Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Uh, <laughs> and so I was driving from Arkadelphia to Hot Springs. I was preaching at Oaklawn Baptist Church where I had just become the youth pastor. And I was 19. And when I got there, I, I had this great idea. I'm going to preach on this passage, and so I needed a good intro, and so I stashed a breakfast sandwich in the pulpit. Uh, and I got a guy on the front row, and I told him, hey, just follow along during this illustration. And so I got up here to preach, and I, I pulled out the sandwich, and I said, just excuse me, I didn't eat breakfast this morning, so I'm going to eat. And so I started to eat, and everybody was kind of surprised that I was doing this. And I said, it was rude for me to do that. So John, why don't you come up and I'll share some food with you. And when he came up, I pulled out a baby jar and I opened the baby jar and I put a bib on him and I, I started, it was so terrible. It was the dumbest <laughs> illustration ever. <clears throat> it was childish. It was gimmicky. It was, it was horrible. I'm totally embarrassed to even tell you this. Now, I don't think I've mentioned that <clears throat> sermon since. I've never mentioned that again. Uh, It was just a humiliating experience. Uh, And so I went on to talk about uh, that he needed baby food and to talk about the path to Christian maturity and growth. And it was just a horrible illustration. Great text, terrible illustration. But the point that the pastor or that the author of Hebrews is making is that there are some truths that require maturity. There are some things that we need to understand about the faith, but we can't understand Because we are kindergarten Christians. That's the title that I named it uh, when I was 19 years old. I circled back to that passage 15 years later when I was in seminary. In my third year of of Greek, I had to do an exegetical paper, a 40-page paper about a topic where I had to translate the passage. I had to translate the chapter. And when I got into chapter 6, verses 1 through uh, 12, I had to... Uh, not just translate that, but interpret it and read all these commentaries and do this entire paper. And while my first sermon about this text was a perfectly acceptable understanding that this was written to Christians, that they needed to grow up in their faith, my second time around, when I actually took the time to study the passage, I came across another perfectly acceptable understanding of this text. And that is that it's not directed at believers at all. As we have been working through the text of Hebrews, uh, I've talked about knowing the audience is the key to unlocking the book of Hebrews. And there are three primary audiences. One, there are Hebrew Jewish Christ followers. They've given their life to Jesus. They've placed their faith in Jesus. They have followed Jesus. We started in Hebrews chapter 10. These were persecuted. They suffered. They struggled. They had their possessions taken away from them. And they were persevering in their faith in Christ. They were walking with Jesus and they were tempted to go back to Judaism. That's the first audience. Jewish Christ followers who had a sincere faith. But the second audience... and and who I believe that this passage is directed to, are those who have heard the Gospel. 
those who have heard who Jesus is, those who have been around genuine believers, but for some reason or another, they have shrunk back in fear and not in faith. They have stopped uh, short of believing in Jesus Christ and giving their life to Jesus. And so sprinkled throughout the book of Hebrews are these warnings for those hearers who have not yet given their life to Christ. They know about Jesus. They respect Jesus. They like Jesus. Jesus is a great teacher to them. Uh, This isn't probably too hard for us to believe because all around the room there are people who have never given their life to Jesus. In this very room, there are people who have gone to church, that they are, are, this is a part of their cultural routine, uh, they understand the Bible, they, they live their life however they want to when they leave here, but they, they like Jesus. They like Jesus' teaching, they like the community of faith, but they're not yet believers. They've never given their life to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21-23 that many people will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we, didn't we do all these great things in Your name? Didn't we, didn't we go to church and speak and, and share the Gospel and give money and serve in the church and do all these great things? And Jesus will say to them, Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Is that possible? Can we be in church? Can we be among the believers Can we be here and never fully, really give our life to Jesus? Absolutely we can. And you can be so convincing that Jesus said that the weeds will grow up with the wheat and they will only be separated on the day of judgment. And so, yes, there are people all around the room who have not yet given their life to Jesus, who serve in the church, who have attended church faithfully. They can quote Scripture, but there is not the power of the Holy Spirit residing within them Because they've never been born again. They've never given their life to Jesus by faith. So I believe that this passage, 5.11 through 14, continuing into chapter 6, which is a really tough passage. Let's just preview that for next week. In chapter 6, he says, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of the Messiah, of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and those who have then fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if that same land that hears the word, that is, is under the rain, and if it only bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now I'm going to talk about next week those eight verses and how my understanding is that it applies to not yet Christ followers. You'll have to decide for yourself, okay? I devoted several weeks of attention to this passage, like I said in seminary. I did word studies and commentaries and translations and and came very comfortably to this conclusion, as many others have as well, that this passage is in fact directed toward the unbelieving. We're going to get into that more next week. So that's the point of view that I'm going to present to you today. But I want you to know clearly, right up front, that you don't have to hold that position. There are theologians on both sides that interpret this passage as two believers 
And there are other theologians who hold that this passage is directed toward non-believers. You have to decide for yourself. But that's the point of view I want you to know that I'm presenting. And I'm presenting it with an open hand and saying that from the best of my understanding, this is who I think this is too. And so you're perfectly welcome to disagree with me. Christ followers, you can do that, you know. Uh, we can agree and disagree on basic interpretations of text that fall within the acceptable range of translation and interpretation. So let's focus our attention on verses 11 through 14. He says, about this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you have become dull. You have become dull. What does this mean? That's their problem. That's their problem. They've become dull of hearing. They've become dull of hearing. Roxanne said that sometimes her eyes become heavy during the sermon, right? Uh, Because she works the night shift. Anybody else's eyes become heavy? I can have kind of a droning, monotone voice, and sometimes what I say is not always that interesting. And and uh, and listen, there's no shame on your part if you just kind of nod off, right? I see it occasionally. Actually, uh, I see it more often than I'd like to admit. Um, there are rooms up there that are kind of dark, and so if you feel nappy, you know, and you want to go up there and and kind of relax as you listen to the sermon, you will never have. A, I'll never give you a hard time for that. Uh, I slept through many sermons uh, in in Bible school and in seminary, and uh, and so I understand. But you can become dull of hearing when you hear the same information over and over again, and you never respond to it. You can become dull of hearing. This word dull of hearing is the Greek word nothros, and it, it literally means sluggish or mentally dull. It can be translated as stupid. Okay, uh, it, It's that same idea that they, uh, that they are sluggish or that they're mentally dull, that they're not following. Uh, and, and the word implies itself that they were once sharp, right? For something to be dull, it implies that at one time it was sharp. It implies that there has been a dulling over time. It implies that at one time they were keenly focused on Jesus Christ. That they were enthralled with Jesus. That they were sharp. That they were listening. That they were close to faith. That these unbelievers had become dull over time. That they had listened to the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that they failed to respond to it, so they became dull in their hearing. They've become worn down by routine and busyness and other priorities. That's one of the benefits of trials and suffering and crises. They tend to keep us focused and sharp. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Have you ever had a crisis in your life that forces you into faith in Jesus? Or that forces you to take seriously your faith. Or more seriously, your faith. You know, nobody ever sits on their deathbed and said, I wish I just had spent more time on my hobbies. I wish I had spent more time at work. Or I wish I had spent more time doing all this. Everybody, when they come to these crises, trial, difficult times in their life, it forces them to take seriously their relationship with God. And those who have become dull have repeatedly come to that point and yet never cross the line of faith. They've heard the Gospel. They understand it. They can spout it off. They understand the Bible and they can talk about it. They can even have insight because they've been in church and they've tasted of the blessings of being in the church and under the Word of God and under the teaching and all those things. But it doesn't equal faith. Personal faith. 
I'll never forget a few years ago driving in Horsham. And uh, the light turned green and, and I, I heard the honk because, you know, people in Philadelphia area honk. And they don't honk in Oklahoma um, where I'm from. You can sit at a stoplight and if it turns green, uh, people are just polite. They'll just not in a honk. They'll just sit there for like a full minute and wait for you to go. And, and you'll look back and they'll kind of nicely wave and you say, okay, and I wave. And wave. But in Philadelphia, at the, the moment it turns green, I know this from experience, if you don't floor it, you'll get a honk. You'll, you may even get a nudge. Uh, I was driving in Philadelphia once and I was brand new to the state and, uh, and I, I pulled up into the the box. You know what the box is? The crosswalk. And I just ignorantly pulled into the box. And this guy um, walked by and he slammed on my hood and said, hey man, don't block the box. And he smiled. And, uh, and it was really nice. But the guy behind me was honking and it was just a wake-up call uh, to being in this area. <laughs> but I digress. So I get to this stoplight, the light turns green, and so by that time I knew to go. So I go, I, put, I gave it gas, and nothing happened. My car, I don't know what happened, it just didn't go. And so I gave it gas again, and it didn't go. And a split second later, a car barreled through the red light going 60 miles per hour. And had I gone, he would have T-boned me. He would have just hit me right square in the side, and he was going fast. It was going very fast, and it was just me and another couple cars behind me, but, but it was one of those moments where I paused at the intersection, and I just pulled over a minute later and said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for a crappy car, right? That won't go when I push, go, it just doesn't go. So I thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for, thank you for saving me. But it was one of those moments where... Um, you start to think, your life flashes before your eyes, you start to think, and then you start to reconsider your life, right? And you evaluate, and you say, where am I with the Lord? Where am I in my faith? Do I have a good relationship with God? Am I right with other people? And for years, crises and trials and difficulties and struggles continue to keep believers sharp in their faith. Do you understand what I mean? Not if you've had that. Yeah. But for unbelievers... For unbelievers who have become dull in their hearing, they can have that same crisis moment, that same trial moment, and they will continually resist the gospel of grace. It's, not, it's, it's resistible to some people. They can understand that Jesus died on the cross for them. They can understand that He loves them, that He was willing to give His life for them, that He died as a substitute for them. And they can acknowledge all of those true things mentally, but in their heart, they, they, they fail to yield to the Holy Spirit. They fail to, say, to submit and say, you have charge of my life. I'm not the king of my own life. I'm not the queen of my own life. You... I submit to you, Jesus, by faith. These people, I believe that he's talking to, have heard the gospel and seen the believers amidst them. Amongst them. Not amidst. I don't even know if that's a word. But they've seen the believers among them and they have failed to respond to Jesus by faith. They failed to give their life to Jesus. They don't know the experience of forgiveness of sin of a clean conscience, 
of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of the, the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians 5 talks about, the love that's overwhelming, the joy that's incredible, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the, the love, all those things they, they have failed to experience because they've never given their life to Jesus. They're not wowed by a sermon or a song. They don't hear the Holy Spirit speaking to them and respond in faith. And so by constant resistance to a message, even like this today, from a guy like me, you can say, I wonder what time the game starts, or I wonder what time he's going to be done, or I wonder what's for lunch, or I wonder what's next. You can constantly resist whatever the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to you. And just Understand that the Bible describes clearly that there will be a day of judgment. That one day you will stand before God. And He will say to you, away from me you evil do. I never knew you. And you'll say, well, I didn't have a chance. And He's going to say, well, there was this sermon, and there was that message, and there were, there were all these times when you heard the Gospel clearly and yet became dull in your hearing. Consider all the warnings that we've heard so far in Hebrews. This is the third warning. All these other warnings. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He's directing that toward these unbelievers. And all these other passages. So the problem that they had was they became dull in hearing. The second part of the text, verses uh, 12 through 14, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So let's just do a quick compare and contrast between the saved, those redeemed, those born again in the crowd, those who have given their life to Christ by faith, and those who haven't, who he's talking to. There is a difference between the saved and the unsaved. He said, though by this time you should be teaching the gospel to believers, you've heard it enough, you should have accepted it, you could be teaching the gospel to other people. So by this time you should be a teacher, but you can't teach it, you're not teaching it, you need to be a learner, you need to be taught now. So that's the first difference, is a, a Christ follower, someone who has given their life to Jesus, can just simply lead someone else to faith in Christ. Evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. I was lost, I gave my life to Jesus, and now I'm saved. That's the simplest explanation of the gospel. And any born-again Christian can do that. They've been saved. They should be able to lead someone to faith in Christ. That's the simplest way that they can become a teacher. But a lost person, someone who's resisted the message, they, they, they're confused. They don't understand because they've never experienced redemption. They need to learn the basic principles. Some of your translations may say oracles. What is he talking about? The basic principles. Well, we get an insight in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul is making an argument about the Romans uh, to, the, to the believers in Rome. And he's describing the Jewish nation and the Israelites and how they were, um, they were receiving the gift of God, but they rejected the message. And so he said, what advantage is the Jew? What is the value of their circumcision? And Paul says it's much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were what? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. If the basic principles of faith are found in the Old Testament, if the Old Testament is like a picture book filled with pictures, those basic principles are revealed in those Old Testament pictures. What do we see in the Old Testament? What are the basic principles? Well, we see salvation by faith. We see Genesis 15, that, that Abram, when God spoke to him and made him a promise, that Abraham did what? 
15.6, he believed God and God credited to him his righteousness. Before there was ever a law, there was salvation by grace through faith. Abram believed God. So we see basic principle, salvation by faith. The Old Testament is, this, is a picture book. It's a shadow of what was to come in Christ Jesus. We see all these shadows and types in the Old Testament. And the point was that if you read the picture book of the Old Testament, when you see Jesus, you would see clearly the picture, right? You would see clearly. So, so if, if the priest was supposed to lay hands on the sacrifice as, as in identifying with it in sin, sacrifice, then when they saw the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they would understand it. That, that the, just in the same way that the priest offered a sacrifice, Jesus became the sacrifice. That's the picture that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, we see that um, in, the, in the Old Testament that righteousness was defined as the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And this was, as Paul said, a school teacher. It was to teach you that you can't be righteous. Right? Romans 3.23, that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Ten Commandments were the, the teacher to show you that you can't be good enough to get to heaven. We see that the ark was the vessel that covered sin and shielded the survivors from the waters of wrath, just as in Jesus is the vessel by which we are shielded from God's eternal wrath. There's the picture. There's the fulfillment in Christ. We see that the Tower of Babel represented our works and that God reduces our works to nothing. We see in Jonah that he's in the belly of a whale for three days, that Jesus was in the, in the earth, in the grave for three days. It's a picture that Jesus fulfills. We see the temple, the curtain, the holy of holies, the sacrificial system. All those things pointed to Jesus. And so if you read the Old Testament, it was your school teacher. So it was the pictures that showed you who Jesus was. And the fulfillment was that. And so those basic oracles are not the gospel. Those basic principles are not the gospel. They point to Jesus. And so these stubborn, unbelieving, resistant people in the crowd who had refused to be, give their life to Jesus, who had refused that, they needed someone to cover those basic oracles again. The basic pictures. They, in 6.1, they're supposed to leave the elementary teachings about Christ, about Messiah, about who He would be, about who the Old Testament pointed toward. They needed milk, not solid food. So what would be considered milk and what would be considered solid food? He said milk is for a child, for someone who is unskilled in the word of righteousness. What does that mean? They're unskilled in the word of righteousness. Verse 13. Well, a lost person is confused about what makes a person righteous, aren't they? Someone in this room might think, what does it take to be righteous before God? And they might say, "I, I just have to be a good person. Right? I just had to be a good person. Uh, in a three-year period, I, I determined that I would personally attempt to share the gospel with 10,000 people. Uh, for three years, I, I made an attempt. I, made, I, I think I stopped counting at like 7,900 something. But I personally made an attempt to present the gospel to, to 10,000 people. That was my goal. In the process of doing that, I had hundreds and hundreds of and hundreds of conversations with people about faith. And I would just ask questions, and I would just allow them to talk, and I would, I would just ask them different questions about faith, and about Jesus, and about the Bible. And, and as they talked, what's the number one answer to the question that I asked? If you died today, are you sure you'd go to heaven? Absolutely yes. Why would you go to heaven? 
they would say, because I'm a what? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Despite the evidence in their own life, despite the evidence in my life, I'm not a judgmental guy pointing my finger saying you're a terrible person, but I'm just saying that all of us understand that we're sinners, right? All of us understand that we've broken the law of God. And yet we have the audacity to stand before a holy God and say, I'm a good person and I deserve heaven, despite the fact that you thought I was a sinner and you crucified your only son on my behalf. I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough. That's the number one answer in all of those conversations. Unbelievers are confused about what makes a person righteous, aren't they? Unbelievers are confused. Is it morality? Is it law following? Is it sacrifice? Is it good works? Bless you. (laughs) I get those, man. I get those sneezing fits. Nothing to be ashamed of. Is it morality? Is it law following? Is it sacrifice? Is it good works? Is there a scale? Right? If my if if I'm better, if I if my good works outweigh my bad works, is that what unbelievers are confused about what it means to be righteous? Think about the rich young ruler Uh, in Luke 18. He comes up to Jesus and he says, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" Jesus said, "Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments," and he lists them. And Jesus, seeing that he became, uh, and then so Jesus, when he heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Putting his finger on his idol of money. And the rich young ruler, when he heard these things, verse 23 of Luke 18 says, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? Jesus said, it's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. There is general confusion in this guy's life about what makes a person righteous. Those who need milk are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Not so with Christ followers, right? Not so with Christ followers. It's not I believe in God or I'm a good person or some sort of scale-based righteousness, is it? Why are we righteous, believers? Because Jesus Christ gives us His righteousness. Amen? You're not righteous in and of yourself. Your righteousness is bestowed upon you at the moment of salvation. When you give your life to Jesus, God sees Jesus uh, His cloak of righteousness that covers you. There is not one righteous, not one, Romans 3 says. They are, we understand that the righteous live by faith. We understand that the righteous live by faith. But unbelievers, they struggle with that. They struggle with that idea. It talks about solid food is for the mature. Their powers of discernment are trained by constant practice to distinguish Good from evil. Not only do they struggle with righteousness, but they struggle with decision making. Unbelievers will continually make decisions. Believers will make bad decisions as well. But there is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that checks us. And Lord willing, you're more holy today than you were before. That there's progress in your life as a Christ follower. That the things that you once indulged in as a sinner are the things that you don't have an appetite for anymore. You just don't have an appetite for sin. And your love and affection for Jesus is increasing and growing. 
So we understand, believers understand, that the righteous live by faith. Do you know, by faith, those two words are mentioned 42 times in the New Testament. I'm not going to go through all of them. You're welcome. Uh, But especially in the book of Romans, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3.25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood so that those who will receive Him by faith, this was to show that God's righteousness, for in His divine forbearance He passed over sins. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.30, since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of his righteousness that he had by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. You know what's undeniably clear in Scripture? Salvation is by faith. It's by faith. Not by works of righteousness. Not by you being good. Not by you being moral. Not by you not saying cuss words or not drinking or not watching TV shows or not participating in this behavior or that behavior. Your works of righteousness mean nothing before a holy God. Mean nothing. The only thing that matters is you having personal faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross for you. So what do you do in response to a message like this? A couple things as we close. If they were dull... They need to be wowed by the love of Jesus again. Do you remember the first time you heard about Jesus loves you? Do you remember the first time somebody quoted John 3.16 to you? As an atheistic, unbelieving kid, I was watching a football game with a young life leader, and somebody flashed something in the end zone. What did they flash? John 3.16, right on the big post. And almost every game you watch on TV today, somebody, some bold believer is going to stand there and some lost kid like me is going to turn to somebody and say, what does that mean? What does that mean? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You've heard that a hundred times. And if you're lost, you become dull. Be wowed again by that message. Be wowed by the amazing love of Jesus. Take another look at Jesus. Read the words that are attributed to Him. Pray to Him. Study His teachings. Just take a minute and observe the way people responded to Him. Forget about, for a moment, church and religion and organized stuff. Just read the Gospels and be wowed by Jesus and His amazing affection and love for you. Approach the person of Jesus like you did at first, before you became dull. Next week we'll talk about the danger of falling away for those who have repeatedly rejected the message of Christ. Father, I thank You for this passage. I thank You for, in all its inherent difficulties, there is still a clarity to Your Word. There is still application for the believer and for the non-believer who hears a message like this. That they can give their life to You, that they can, by faith, put their trust in You, that they can come to You, because as long as there's breath in their lungs, it's not too late to believe. So it's my prayer today that You would give faith. That You would save those who hear. That they would not become dull of hearing again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.